Once again, good morning. In the, in the mid-80s, I used to work for the Anglican Radio Unit in Sydney. Um, I had a great time. It was fun producing uh, material for 2CH uh, and things like that, and at 2SM, uh, producing audio visuals. One of the, uh, the fun times was meeting, and also the privileged times, was meeting people that the Anglican Church um, were, were leaders in Anglican Church or were missionaries, etc. One such person was a medical doctor called Dr. Paul White. He was a missionary with CMS in Tanzania, in Africa, and he started a hospital over there. Two or three years into his ministry in Tanzania, due to his wife's ill health, uh, he or they had to return back to Australia. But from that point on, he was involved in many other ministries. Along with Clifford Warren, these two guys introduced uh, Christian media, really, into the Australian media scene in the form of radio and television. Uh, you may not have even heard of these people, but uh, Clifford was instrumental in the What's the Name show, which was on Channel 7, I think, in the, in the 80s and 90s. It was really the advent of Christian television uh, material for children. Dr Paul White uh, came back to Australia and set up a radio series which went for 25 years to all the mainline radio stations and it was called just called Jungle Doctor and he would relate stories of the jungle and stories of the medical work that he did um, with a Christian perspective. He then went on to write a series of uh, books and film strips which are still available today and the Jungle Doctor fables with these, the monkey and the elephant and the giraffe. They're amazing stories. He didn't pull any punches. Animals died in Jungle Doctor stories. Sin was real. Graham Wade illustrated those stories and they, they're still available as film strips and books. I really enjoyed preparing this sermon, reading his biology, uh, autobiology actually, and what stood out for me when I met Dr. White all those years ago, and he would have been in his mid-70s when I met him, he, a side issue, he, was a, he used to record bird sounds. So I got involved because we were producing cassettes at the Anglican Radio Unit, and so I got involved with him with these cassettes of bird sounds. What's that called when you do recording of ornithology? Yes. So he was very keen about that. So I got to know him a little bit. He was never wealthy and he came back to Australia from the mission field without any real money. And on several occasions, wasn't quite sure where his next pound, they used to have pounds in those days. They're like, they're like a dollar, but they're actually two. You probably get the idea. I am old. So he was never wealthy when he came back from the mission field. Uh, and as I say, it was, there's times in his autobiography where he talks about not having six shillings in the bank. In 1950, Paul White mortgaged his home for £600. For those that have just taken out mortgages, that was a lot of money then. He used that money to purchase, on behalf of the Crusader movement, the campsite at Galston. You're probably aware of the campsite at Galston. Well, Paul White mortgaged his home to pay for that. I remember him talking about his philosophy on money. If he spent anything on himself, 
he would give an equivalent amount to support ministry. One example was when he and his wife bought a new puppy. They gave an equivalent amount that they paid for the new puppy towards ministry. He pursued this philosophy of life, philosophy of giving through his whole ministry. Paul White showed one heart and mind, similar to what the early church did in Acts 4, 32 to 37. In the early church, each member there in Jerusalem chose not to look at his possessions as firstly and foremost their own, rather they chose to see them as available for common use amongst all the believers. A common fund had been created. The wealthy would sell land, homes, goods, so there was no needy people in their congregational community. So what are the characteristics of this early church in Acts? Number one, one mind and one heart. They didn't hold on to material things. The gospel or the good news of Jesus' resurrection was being preached with power by the apostles and the elders. Great grace was on all of them. Now, please note that in this passage, Acts does not say to sell everything you've got. They did not create a commune. They still, many of them, had their houses. In fact, in fact that's where they used to meet. In chapter 5, verses 4, Peter points out to Ananias that while his property remained unsold, it was his property. And even after it was sold, it was still his property to do with what he wanted. So it's the attitude towards money and possessions which is important. In Acts 4, money and possessions were seen as belonging to everyone so as to benefit all believers. If someone was in need, you gave what you were able to give. No one was under compulsion to sell up and give their money. One group who was seen to benefit uh, were the widows. There was a daily distribution to people in need as recorded in Acts 6 verse 1, where some widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Acts 6.1 Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So they were on to it. Okay, in Acts 36, chapter 4, Barnabas, who later becomes a kind of apostle, he was called an apostle, probably a small, small A apostle. Barnabas understood this principle when he sold a field and presented the money to the apostles. It was, it was an example of the, to those who were wealthy, but did not trust in their wealth. Now wealth, all that we're given, is from God. We are accountable to him for what we've been given. We're accountable to him for our wealth, our money, our possessions and our power. So the question is, are you generous towards God? Remember, it's not about how much you give, but why you give. Our attitude to money should be similar to Barnabas and the early believers. Have you thought about why you give to God's work? Let's, let's back up a bit. 
Do you give any money for God's work, for the spread of the gospel and support of his workers? Do you give any money? If you're not giving anything, this should be a challenge to you to examine your heart as to whether you trust him at all for your salvation. For those who do give, do you give because it's the right thing to do? You know, you've got to throw a few coins, notes now, in the, uh, in the trays as they go around. Maybe you think that the people that run this church don't really know how to manage money. And you certainly don't agree with how they spend the money that you give. So therefore, you restrict how much you give. You limit what you give with a, with a generous heart. We should ask ourselves, do I, do I have generosity of heart and mind with my money as the early believers did? There's an old saying, and Greg's used it before, so I'll plagiarise Greg. The last part of a person to be converted is the wallet. It's true, isn't it? But wealth is so uncertain. You read about the Hollywood stars who are multi-billionaires and you read how unhappy most of them are. They've gone, they go through marriage after marriage. They end up like Justin Bieber in severe depression. Money does not buy happiness. It's so uncertain. Having wealth can be a real problem. In Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides all things to enjoy. God gives wealth. He can take it away. However, we need to be generous. I need to be generous, no matter how rich or poor I might be. It's no good thinking, when I get rich, I'll give more. Or a student thinking, when I'm on a good salary, then I'll start giving to the church. No, God wants you to be a cheerful giver now with whatever amount he has given you. It is his money, not your money. You earn it, he gives it. Mark 12, 41 to 44. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the, the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. She has put everything in she had, all she had to live on. That speaks to me sometimes because I know that often I give out of my abundance. I give, give out of my wealth. It is not sacrificial giving. The many believers, the early believers, had one heart, one mind. No one said that any of his possession was his own, but they, instead they held everything in common. That's a real challenge for us, for those who cling, for me, for you, who cling to our money, who cling to our lifestyle. Ask yourself the question, do I have a generous heart towards fellow believers in God's kingdom? Or are you, in fact, not even part of that kingdom? Because if you don't have a generous heart towards ministry, towards those that are working in the kingdom, to the needs of the poor, then 
I won't finish that question. Your attitude towards money needs to, to be... Your attitudes to money needs to change to be in line with God's view of money. If your heavenly father took your wealth away, would you fall on your knees or would you turn away from him and revile him? Your attitude to money has very serious consequences, as you can see in this next part of Acts in chapter 5. In the church, there are two kinds of... There's probably lots of kinds of people, but let's... For this morning, there's two kinds of people. And it's nearly impossible to distinguish from the outside. On the outside, Ananias and Sapphira just look like another church member called Barnabas. Barnabas had sold his property and brought the money to the apostles. And to the casual observer, Ananias and Sapphira were doing the same thing. But deep in their heart lingered a love of money and a desire for people's praise. So they conspired together to present a portion of their money while passing it off as the entire amount. They lied to the Holy Spirit. This is worlds apart from the attitude of Barnabas. But it looks very similar. We may be able to get away with this sort of behaviour for a while. But if someone looks closely at our lives, the lies are there. Threatening to undo everything. And even if they don't, we cannot hide from God. It may be difficult for us to distinguish between a truly repentant heart and a seasoned faker, but nothing is hidden from God. The Holy Spirit knows our thoughts as if it were being played through an audio advice loudspeaker or on an audio advice monitor or projector. That is why, despite fooling everyone else, Ananias and Sapphira were still found out. There are no locked doors or hidden closets from the Holy Spirit. There are no locked doors or hidden closets from the Holy Spirit. A day will come when every secret will be proclaimed from the housetops. Matthew 10, 27. Do you really believe this? Are we ready for it? Are you ready for it? Am I ready for it? Ananias and Sapphira had known this, but they forgot it. They became so consumed with the praise of others that they forgot the only one whose praise really matters is God. Now, I can't see inside your heart, which is really good, and you can't see inside my heart to discern whether we're a Barnabas or whether we're an Ananias. But the secrets of your heart, of my heart, are not secrets to God. When you proclaim with your lips, Jesus is Lord, and live as if his law doesn't matter, don't deceive yourselves into thinking you have been successful in tricking God, because you haven't. Now, not everyone gets struck down immediately for their sin. So why did Ananias and Sapphira? A couple of reasons. First, their death, like much in Acts, serve as a sign. God takes something that is true in the kingdom of God and puts it on physical display. We see this most often through the healing miracles, but it is equally true in this judgment. God, God doesn't do this with everyone who lies to the Holy Spirit today, but that not, should not cover up the fact that this death is a picture of how God feels about sin. Ultimately, how God deals with sin, it is a glimpse of the future judgment for all who share in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. 
Secondly, Ananias and Sapphira had seen the activity of the Holy Spirit so closely that in their hearts they knew it was wrong. I wonder, have you ever done something or said something and as the action occurred, as the words left your mouth, you knew that you were grieving the Holy Spirit? You knew as you said or did that act that God was not pleased with you, not pleased with me. These people, Ananias and Sapphira, had seen the mercy of God. They'd seen the signs of wonders. Ananias' name, in fact, means God is merciful. They had been likely witnesses of the death of, of Christ himself. And yet, despite being exposed to such great grace and truth, they spurned it for the praise of men. Unsurprisingly, these dramatic deaths caused a great deal of fear. Acts 5, verses 5 and 11. But we may be shocked to see that even in the light of this, more and more people believed in the Lord and the message of salvation. Acts 5, 14. Fear is an in, in, integral part of worship. For, for those familiar with the idea of an infinitely loving God, this is a jarring realisation. But God's love only makes sense when we know the magnificence of his glory and the might of his power. That is why John Newton wrote, in amazing grace, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." As the fear of God increases, so does the sense of his love. He's not our mate. He's our creator. He's our father. He's our saviour. More and more, as we grow close to him, we understand what we have been saved from. I had a dream last night. It was the end of the world. I don't normally have dreams like that. But it was 10.30 in the morning and it was dark. And the news was saying the world's about to end. Now, I don't know what prompted that dream. I don't think it was right in the sermon. I don't think there was anything Greg said last week. But it was a little bit scary for a while until I wake up and thought, oh, was a dream. Oh, good. We are invited into the closest possible relationship with God through Jesus, his son. But this intimacy must never ever overshadow the majesty of who God is. If we're honest, many of us find God's action here in this passage offensive. But that merely reveals our ignorance of our sin and God's holiness. We shouldn't ask the question, why did they die? Instead, we should ask the question, why do we live? We live to find Jesus, to trust in him. Yes, God is patient with us and he is slow to anger. Man, I know that because I know what I'm like. I know what Dave's like. I know what, I know what Sam's like. He is slow to anger. He loves us. He offers the hand of fellowship and friendship. He is slow to anger. But as R.C. Scrow quotes, we forget that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, not to become bolder in our sin. If Jesus really went through the tormenting hell of the cross to redeem us and we neglect in pursuit of our sin, in pursuit of money and worldly passions, what will it be like to stand before Jesus as saviour, but also as our judge? As I prepared this, to write this sermon today, this thought crossed my mind several times. In the reality of living my life in the wealthiest country in the world, Am I like Barnabas or am I more like Ananias? 
Can I ask, can I encourage you to ask these questions yourself? Am I, am I a bana ba banana? Banana? No, Barnabas. <laughs> am I bana Barnabas or am I Paul White? Do I give to ministry? Do I seek ministry to support? Not only here at the church, but elsewhere. Have I got a generous heart and mind with my money? Or do I count my money as my own and hold it with a clenched fist? Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, you may teach us to be generous. You may teach us to seek out ministry to support. You may teach us to support our local church here. You may teach us to support the work with our kids, with our children. You may teach us desire that all those in come, who come in contact with this church, whether they be members of our family or not, may come to know you as their Lord and Saviour. Father, we pray for our kids. We pray that you may guide them with our wisdom and your wisdom, Father, that you may help us to be mature and help our kids to come to know who Jesus is and why he died for them. Father, we pray for our children. We pray for all the kids in this church, Father. We pray that you will give us a mind and a heart that is generous to you. In Jesus' name.